0: What's up, everybody? Please check out the newly created Instagram that we've made for the podcast. You could find us at Nate Haber Pod. That's at Nate Haber, P O D. You could also find us on Facebook at The Optimal Life Podcast. Again, Instagram at Nate Haber Pod, Facebook at The Optimal Life Podcast for updates on guests, video clips, highlights from the show, and personal development, self help, self improvement, ideas, thoughts, and musings from yours truly. And now, please enjoy another inspirational conversation. The Optimal Life. So, The Last Prisoner Project. Mm-hmm. Let's start there. Welcome to the show, first of all. I'm glad to talk to you. Glad to have you here. Uh, what exactly is The Last Prisoner Project, and how did you get involved?
1: So, Less Prisoner Project is a nonprofit that was founded in 2019, really out of the core belief that no one should be incarcerated for cannabis offenses that are now legal. Um, so, it's it's a group of individuals who are from a whole host of backgrounds. Um, that some who have been impacted by the war on drugs. or policy and education experts and people who have been uh, leaders in the world of criminal justice and their focus is really trying to get people out of prison who are are serving still serving time because there are still tens of thousands of people who are in prison for things that are now very much legal and I got involved uh, a couple of years ago I was uh, asked to be Part of the advisory council and then uh, there was an opening on the board of directors um, and just given my background and some of the, the opportunities that I'd had experience and um, they asked me to, to join the board uh, and so it's been uh, about three years that I've been involved with the organization and it's been incredible just to see the, the changes that are happening and the work that the team has
0: done. Give us a little bit of your background to hear, because you seem, as we were talking about just before, to be extremely busy. You've got your hand involved in a lot of things. You're an entrepreneur. You're an investor. You're an advisor. Uh, you're you're involved with multiple different organizations. So, just at a high level, who exactly are you?
1: <laughs> that is a deep question. Who am <laughs> I? Um, well, I my I've been in the cannabis industry since 2014. So prior to that, I had a more of a traditional background in finance on the investing and investment management side um, and financial services. And then I came into cannabis really because of a personal family. My grandfather was struggling with cancer and we were looking for alternatives um, and had the opportunity to kind of be on a lot of different sides of the table uh, in in the industry. So on the investment side and as well as brand building operations, um, I was involved with the SPAC. Now my focus is, Uh, kind of multiple sided still, uh, I'm on the investment side, have a brand, uh, and then obviously have been working on this book for a while and then really focused on the advocacy element as the industry continues to evolve and grow as we're missing some of the elements around social equity.
0: Mm. Your book, you mentioned the book waiting to inhale, uh, which we'll get to some of that, of course. Um, but so, how did you get so lucky to be named the most powerful woman in cannabis? Where's this coming from?
1: <laughs> you know, one time somebody said it in an article, and it and it it stuck for some. You know, it also at a time I have to say that there probably weren't as many women uh, involved in the cannabis industry, and I thankfully that has changed. But there's still a lot of work to do. Um, you know, but I think at the time it was just being involved on the investment side, which there were very few women uh, involved in that area of the industry. And then also just being able to work across a lot of different areas. So both uh, businesses, investment firms, um, obviously on the more of the advocacy side as well. So I don't know if I necessarily would say that that title is accurate, but, you know, I'll take it for now. You'll
0: take it. You're going to you're going to run with that. Good, <laughs> yeah. good, good, good. <laughs> Uh, So when you say cannabis, we're talking marijuana. Is that a correct statement?
1: That is true, yes.
0: And how many states now is marijuana legal in currently?
1: So we have about, uh, I think now it's at 37, 38 states where there's some form of uh, adult use or recreational, as some people call it, and then um, medical states as well. So we're, we're chipping away at that number uh, every day, You know, and, and states are continuing to legalize. It started off with Colorado and Washington, and, and now look at where we are.
0: So for the states that it's still completely 100% illegal in, Are you guys focusing there, or are you starting with states where the laws have changed, the laws that once incarcerated an individual for carrying, distributing, doing something with marijuana that threw them away and put them in the can, those laws are are extinct. They're obsolete. Are you starting with the, the Colorados and the Washingtons, or are you just going at everything full force?
1: Well, it really varies. um, And I would say kind of going at it full force because uh, it it varies really why the people are in prison and then also what opportunities there are to impact that, that social justice side. So as an example, New York state recently, more recently legalized and part of their regulations around the industry were really focused on the social equity element. So allowing for those who have been previously incarcerated or impacted by the war on drugs to have an earlier opportunity to participate in the industry. And there's just so much that goes around that, you know, the support that's needed. So that's like one element of it. But then when you think about people who are currently incarcerated, I mean, it sometimes doesn't matter where they are necessarily arrested because they could be in prison anywhere across the country. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about, you know, it's just not uh, focused on just one region or one area or whether or not it's legal in that state now, but it's also around the policy. You know, if it's, there are people who are sitting in prison for, you know, years, decades, or selling the equivalent of one joint or one gram um, you know, which now in so many states, possession is decriminalized or there might be a small fine. But we we have people who are serving almost life sentences for some crimes of, of similar nature. And so the, that's really where the focus is. Are why are these people there? You know, what type of sentences are they serving and how can we help, you know, right those wrongs? Because it's a complicated process to it's not like the, the legalization happens and all of a sudden there's this expungement that just happens, which it should happen, but we don't have that today. And so that is something that really takes time. It takes a lot of legal effort. You know, it's not a simple system, state to state. And so really focusing on those people who are, have been just severely punished for something that you know, their worst crimes that have been committed that are still illegal and people are serving less time.
0: What were the maximum sentences back then? Do you know, just for, again, using your example of selling one joint, what was the max sentence?
1: So we have given an example um, in the book. uh, There's a a man named Michael Thompson who was um, selling, it was a a few pounds, um, but he was sentenced to uh, 42 to 60 years and served, ended up serving 25 years of that sentence.
0: 25 Um, years for selling a few pounds of marijuana?
1: Yep, yep, and you know what it turned into, and that was in in Michigan, which legalized cannabis uh, for adult use consumption in 2018, while Michael was still serving uh, his prison sentence. Um, and you know he could have he could have been there for that 62 years. And what also happened to him, which I think happens to a lot of people, is that. Cannabis is just the element that allows police to to start engaging with that person, to start charging them, and then what ended up happening is that they found guns in his home, even though the the transaction that took place was not in his home. There were no guns involved because those can create a heavier sentence. That's what happened to him. So there are things that end up getting tacked on with cannabis can kind of be the entryway, and what we joke, although it's not funny, is that. Cannabis is certainly a gateway drug, but not the way that people assume it to be, that mm. it leads to harder and heavier drugs. We say that it's a gateway drug because it leads to the prison system. Oof. That is how people get introduced. That is how they are often cornered and then things are added on because you, know, you have that opportunity. That's what that creates for law enforcement, unfortunately. And I um, assume
0: that's one of the foundational elements of your entire book premise when you talk about the fight for racial justice. Because dig into that a little bit you're you why exactly was this war on drugs and this marijuana and, and these kind of things what i believe you're saying targeted black and underrepresented communities groups etc more so than it did white people how so
1: yeah what we really talk about is the the origins of the dea and how a lot of this drug policy came to be and you know, when we think about it in the context, in the historical context, it was what was happening at those times, and there, there were a lot of different uh, racial and political issues happening that allowed for something like a war on drugs or, you know, criminalization of that to help control communities. And so often, you know, as the case, Asians in the are often considered in the context of opium, Mexicans with cannabis. You black populations with cocaine, when you think historically. And all of these were really used to really target these communities for control. Um, you know, prohibition certainly has its racist roots. And these were really, these policies were developed and strengthened out of fear of these racial minority populations, um, you know, jobs, communities being impacted and thinking about ways that you could really... Create changes in that uh, in a a negative way. And, you know, by creating these policies that it allows for over-policing and the the disproportionate incarceration of these groups, which then leads to this cycle of poverty and social marginalization that we talk about throughout the story, throughout the book.
0: So are you suggesting that the cities, the states themselves, the communities, the, the people that were the lawmakers they were putting in these types of laws because they knew we could kind of sweep the community and get these these minorities, we can get these people that we don't want in our communities into the prison system through these marijuana and other drug laws. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, that is one element of it. You know, when we think about drug prohibition, everybody thinks that that is normal. But if you think historically and you it, it's not going even that far back. It's saying 100 years. Um, a lot of these substances were not illegal, uh, cannabis in particular, but there were other elements as well that were not illegal and have been used throughout longer-term history for a, a wide range. So it's although it's become the norm now, it really is more of an anomaly. And what we try to examine is why did that come to be? What was happening at those times? Uh, and with people in the cannabis community, it's it's more understood. But we really wanted people to know more broadly, so we can understand how these policies came to be and the impact that they've had, so we can make those changes. Um, you know, prohibiting drug use. I'm not saying by any means that that's a bad thing, but the way that it is prohibited has allowed for communities to be targeted. And this was very specific under the Nixon administration. You know, in 1971, President Nixon officially declared the war on drugs, which led to the passage of more stringent drug laws and the expansion of the criminal justice system to enforce them. It's even been revealed since then by people who were part of his cabinet that those laws were put in place to really try to control communities that were against that administration. You know, as he referred to as as hippies and blacks and Jewish populations. They, you know, that was a very unknown element at that time, but has become known later around why some of those policies were put in place.
0: Now, do you guys have firm examples in the book of situations where, it, or generally speaking, it seems to be where a white person and a black person were charged and potentially also convicted of the same crime, yet the white person served a fraction of the prison time? Was that a common theme?
1: Well, we didn't necessarily take it as like a a black person's case and a white person's case, but we do have a lot of information uh, and and statistics around criminalization rates uh, and incarceration rates um, and usage across populations. So even though cannabis consumption in white populations is relatively similar to other minority groups, in particular, black, black populations, Blacks are serving four times as many prison sentences as whites. And so those are just, that's just data that exists today. You know, a lot of it has come through the ACLU. Um, We do, where we focus more of our energy in the book was around stories of those who have been incarcerated for cannabis crimes, like Michael Thompson, as I mentioned, we have quite a range of other stories. Um, And what it was what their charges were what they what actually happened the time that they spent there and then what has happened to them as they've come out of prison uh what what are resources if any how do you assimilate back into society what are your opportunities and and the reality is is they're they're very challenging mm. and and this is for anybody coming out of prison and uh, not necessarily just for black and brown populations but because they are so targeted and sitting in jail for these crimes that you know, now a lot of people are betting benefiting from, particularly white populations, um, really examining the impact that's had on their families, their communities at large, and that, again, that cycle of poverty that then starts because of these um, laws around drug usage.
0: How did you guys get Michael Thompson freed?
1: Well, that's really, uh, you know, Last Prisoner Project and and a range of other organizations that really helped to um, focus on what what his specific case was and targeting what was happening in Michigan in particular. So at the time, um, you know, the the governor really did understand that what was happening, legalization happening there and what Michael Thompson had been charged with sitting in, in today's Time made no sense. You know, it was an incredibly harsh penalty for what the crime actually was, um, and so you know, taking a, a lot of lawyers going through the case, appealing um, over and over again until there was an opportunity to actually get someone. You know, the governor in particular on his side to understand that that his time had been served, that there was no reason for him to to continue on, um, and that's often you know what the case is for anybody who. Uh, for any case that last prisoner project or any other organization is working on you have to go through it ha- it's very specific to that individual um, where the where the charge was what the law was at the time what it is today uh, so unfortunately it's not a short process but it is uh, one that obviously pays off when you're able to to have these breakthroughs as as what happened with Michael Thompson
0: yeah so that's what I'm trying to understand because it's it's Okay, we recognize there's thousands or tens of thousands, as you guys point out, of people still incarcerated for these cannabis crimes that in most states today are, are legal. It's not a crime. A lot of these people are sitting there for an outdated crime. Okay, it was a crime at the time, but does the punishment fit the crime, especially now? Probably not. And it's time to let these people go. Um, what, how, take us through it. I know it's specific to each individual. Tahira, but when you guys are sitting there and you guys come across a, another eye-opening, gut-wrenching case like a Michael Thompson, where do you start? What's the middle process? How do you go from step A to step B to ultimately the finish line? And, uh, you know, that kind of, that, that sort of thing.
1: Sure. Let us peek behind the curtain. The starting point is often, uh, you know, some type of, of an appeal or a petition for clemency that you have to file, you know, whatever that process is in the different state. Um, and then, there can be anything from hundreds of thousands of letters, emails, calls for supporters. You know, sometimes celebrities get involved to mobilize their following to, to really just call attention to the case itself. Um, you need to get elected officials highlighting that particular or understanding that particular case as well, and then getting it to, you know, the right person for Michael Thompson case Um the Michigan attorney general personally vouched for his case after it finally got to that person. And then it hit the governor Gretchen Whitmer's desk. And that's where that finally, that change made. It's not necessarily the same path, unfortunately, for each one. Um, and this took over a year, you know, from the from the point where that, that petition for clemency was filed. Um, and again, it's not like, the person sitting in prison necessarily knows what to do. It's not like there is um, a list, you know, just a list across the country of all the people who are in prison for. You know, but, but the, let me just, a, let me just stop you. That is no longer a crime. Let, let me uh, stop you so real quick to hear.
0: Let me, let me just interject here. What I'm sure. str- what I'm struggling to understand then, because the, you just said it, not most prisoners, they don't know what to do. They don't have the resources, uh, the, the, you know, if it wasn't for you guys, Michael Thompson may still be sitting there. But when a guy like Michael Thompson is released, in my opinion, again, from a non, not knowing the system like you do, why shouldn't every other person in the state of Michigan, at least, that's sitting there for the same crime, be, mm-hmm. let, go, be let go that exact same day? Why do they need it for you guys to, to have to go in it? I mean, they've just said, you're right, this guy should be freed. And I know I'm dumbing it down. Trust me, but shouldn't every other person that's in jail in the state of Michigan for that same crime Michael committed be let go that same day too?
1: Absolutely, that is our opinion, and I think a lot of a lot of people's opinions. Unfortunately, that's just there's no policy, there's no regulation that supports that at this time in any location. And you know, you might be familiar with uh, not too long ago, President Biden uh, pardoned. At the federal level, uh, a group who had been within certain crimes that had been committed, unfortunately, with that, even though it was a a broad pardon and it was a great step forward, um, the challenges is that most crimes uh, that are imprisoned for cannabis are at the state level. So, I believe there were there were several thousand who were impacted, but it takes measures like that, policies, kind of sweeping. Uh, regulation that allows for this to happen. And that's why it's still today on a case-by-case basis. I know it sounds very like this it sounds stupid. Why, mm. if you let this person go, why wouldn't you do somebody who's exactly the same, but tell us what classifies also as like exactly the same. There are different nuances. There are things that people have to go through in order to, to kind of decipher what is one versus the other. And again, the data is not great on a national level to understand, okay, who's who's in prison at this time for a crime that was committed during this period for, call it, you know, one gram of cannabis. Like, if there was a database that existed where you could just pull that information, mm-hmm. that would be amazing, but there isn't. And so you, again, because it's on a state-by-state basis, the way that people report is different, the way that states can report is different. And so it does become much more of a, you know, person by person case by case basis for now we hope that that changes and there have been um know, the, the usage of technology and we highlight some of this in the book where there have been groups that have been going into more localized regions in states and pulling it through their systems to see who they can uh categorize in certain buckets so they can do mass expungements but again it's not at a national level or even at like a whole state level and so those that's the progress that we need to get towards to be mm. able to get these people out of prison
0: oh wow that's extremely complicated and complex disturbing though because you want to talk about unjust not not yeah. only was it unjust that they've been serving these obnoxiously long sentences for such a, a non-violent crime in a Again, something that people are using recreationally all over this country now legally. Yep. Now, on top of that, to pour salt in the wound, to get a guy like Michael Thompson, we're all celebrating. This is great news. Yet here I am. I did even less than Michael Thompson, and I'm still stuck here because nobody's looking at my case. I mean, that, that's got to be right. And, yeah.
1: And you don't know who to contact if you're that person who's in prison. You don't necessarily know a lawyer or maybe you do and you know you can start with that person and then that person can go to the next person but it's it's not a clear-cut process and that's a piece of it as well navigating our legal system particularly if you're the one serving the time uh it's not i'm sure it wasn't meant to be an easy system and it's definitely not and so you are often left to your own resources or again finding an organization or an organization finding you who then can put a light on your case and start doing that, that groundwork, you know, what the process is, is not same from state to state either. You know, what's the, what's the first step? Is it filing an appeal? Is it filing, you know, a, a for clemency? Like, what is it? What are those steps that have to be taken? Um, and so understanding those nuances is very important.
0: No doubt. Uh, so I'm curious, are you guys then, when you guys go after somebody or go after to try to get somebody released, um, are you getting headwinds then back at you from prosecutors and saying, absolutely not. This person deserves to stay. How, how is that working out?
1: Yeah, and again, you know, it depends um, for some. There are it's just clean cut, you know, that it's cannabis and it was nothing else for others. There there is a mix of things that are going on in those cases. So the example and not to keep going back to Michael Thompson, but what got added into his case or his conviction or guns even though they were not at all a part of the crime that they're saying existed once you add add those in it creates a much larger charge and so yes it could have started with cannabis but for some of these people it's it's compounds in different ways depending on what the case is Mm -hmm. and so that makes it that much more complex to be able to decipher you know what are those elements that are uh contributing to it that are creating you know these particular charges and have added that greater sentence if michael thompson had not have guns included in his conviction charge uh that sentence likely would not have been as long. It, sure. it may have been, and there certainly have been charges across the country where people are serving decades and decades for small amounts of cannabis. Um, but again, his was in particular because of that. And so depending on where you are and what types of charges those can bring, there are other things that can be contributing to the charges that are brought together. And, and cannabis is just was the first thing that allowed you to get in there. And so a prosecutor could bring any of that up. You know, they can say, oh, this person had a maybe, you know, something with battery before this happened. And so this, you know, they shouldn't be out or guns or something else. And so you don't know what they could potentially throw at you or what else is in that in that particular charge or those charges that can be used against you in some way,
0: shape or form. What's the sentiment like behind closed doors? You're sitting there dealing with these attorney generals, the governors of the state's. Uh, the justices and judges themselves in the system, are, is everyone kind of on the same team? Like, hey, we recognize that there's a lot of people sitting behind bars right now that shouldn't be?
1: You know, this is, uh, it's a, its a much better question for the people who are really on the front line, of the Last Prisoner Project, but what they share with us is that it, it's a mixed sentiment um, because on one side, there's an understanding to some degree that, yeah, this is, seems like a ridiculous charge or this seems like something that's wildly aggressive um but then there's also this strong belief and by a lot of people in the prison system and that people have done things and it was illegal at the time so it shouldn't have done and they should you know this this is justice justice has been served um so it's not a clear-cut opinion by any means and you know it's just similar to the politics of our country today there are a lot of different shades of gray and so that creates a lot of different opinions around what what seems like it's fair and not I think by and large we're seeing obviously in conversations like this that it just seems so absurd that Mm -hmm. and it's frustrating uh and what you know one thing that led Akwasi and I to want to write our book is that we want more people to just know what is happening so you can do more. Voices can come together. We can kind of create that more momentum that is needed because it's, you know, for me, it creates outrage. How can people be suffering this way when so many people are benefiting? But on the other side of it, the other people who do rightly believe that they should be there. Um, right. for like the, well, one reason or another. So people, I wish it was more yeah. of a common sentiment that we believe that everybody should be let go. But yeah. that's that's the work the Last Prisoner Project and other organizations are really doing.
0: Th- that's, uh, some people believe, hey, it was a crime when it was committed. And therefore, doesn't matter what happens now today. That person deserves to be where he or she is. That's their stance. Right. But when you guys see like a Joe Rogan and Elon Musk lighting up a, a joint for the whole world to see, and smoking it and laughing, have a good time as they should. Right, it's, it's legal as they should, <laughs>
1: right. but everybody should.
0: Right, and then you see people that are sitting there. Now, listen, if there's somebody that's in prison because marijuana was kind of the gateway, they they as you mentioned earlier, and and then the police found other things, and then there was other charges. Okay, I could see how some people, maybe they were more violent, potentially. Uh, It might not have been the most... Mm -hmm. It might not have also been the most just way to find those other uh, uh, things or in the people's dirty closets. But let's assume that there was some more violence there. I get that. But when you, again, you have these nonviolent people that were selling a joint, sitting there, or, or smoking a joint, sitting there for a decade, two decades, and you've got people now you know, the richest man in the world, smoking freely for everyone to see, it just, it man, that just doesn't feel, it doesn't pass the gut test.
1: Oh, I absolutely agree. And I think that that has continuously uh, motivated me while being in this industry that's saying that it's just not right. You know, we, right. we're seeing legalization happen. We're seeing all these people freely consuming, you know, conducting business, making money. And yet, those people who were originally involved in the industry before it was a formal, you know, quote unquote industry are still suffering and continue to suffer and can't even participate in the industry now because there's so many, you know, there's so much red tape that you have to go through. There's so much capital that you need. Um, and, And a lot of people, it's not even that they've necessarily committed a nonviolent cannabis crime like selling a joint. You know, we have another example of Evelyn LaChapelle in our book um, and she's part of the, she's been part of the Last Prisoner Project and she was involved in uh, somebody who was actually trafficking but for her it was the usage of her bank account um, by that individual to pass money through. And she got 87 months in prison.
0: She got 87 months in prison. a young child. 87 months in prison that's almost what almost eight years
1: um exactly and you know for somebody who wasn't actually involved directly wasn't engaged in it but was part of you know this longer bigger operation that happened like that's a that's a pretty it's a first time offender had no other charges had a college degree um that mm-hmm. is a pretty heavy sentence.
0: Is She black woman.
1: Yes, she is.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and when is she? Is she still serving it as we speak?
1: No, she was. She was released in February of 2019 and um, had a four-year probation following that. But she has been, you know, working in the cannabis industry. She worked with the Last Prisoner Project, really is an advocate for other constituents who have suffered the way that she did, and she's she's working to get her life back to where she wanted it to be and taking care of her daughter and um, you know it's but it's been a journey you know there's there are people who do have support when they come out there are people who have no support and everything in between and you know having a having something on your record really challenges people from jobs right and you know it doesn't matter what it is to anybody well it's and, just it's a mark against you
0: and that's part of your book and you guys talk about it quite quite extensively waiting to inhale. Cannabis legalization and the fight for racial justice. We've linked it here in the show notes. Uh, But that's one of the things that you guys talk about. It's not only trying to get these people out and get them back into society, but correct me if I'm wrong, Tahira. You guys are taking it one step further. I think you teased it earlier in our conversation. You're actually helping these people potentially get involved in this cannabis industry that's now legal so that they could profit from it
1: absolutely and so from both looking at it from the the business lens and the policy and regulation side which is much more of uh, my co-author Acquasie's wheelhouse looking at ways to both allow for people to participate whether or not they have a criminal record that is related to one of these crimes that's no longer a crime um, and then also you know what are the tools and resources that can help people get engaged in the industry, advance in the industry, because getting a, you know, if you're sitting in the U S and you have to get a dispensary license or a cultivation license, getting the license is just, you know, step five of like a hundred, you know, then you have to know how to run that business, have the resources, the tools behind you. And so um, a lot of those elements that we're trying to help create other organizations are creating and we're supporting uh, because people should, you know, they, they need the opportunity. It's not as simple as saying, like, oh, yeah, just give them a license and that's it. Moving right. people to the front of the line only does so much. It is a good start, but it only does so much. Mm,
0: that's beautiful. Powerful stuff. And, and your mission's incredible. Who who are some of the celebrities? Drop, give, give us some name drops right now on, on some of the big names that are part of your guys' organization that are helping you guys make an impact. Uh,
1: yeah, for Last Prisoner Project, um, you know, they're... There are people uh like willie nelson there are people who um revolution is a band that has been really actively engaged um we have outside of lpp and just in other stories have been people like snoop dogg kim kardashian you know there's a whole range of people who have been pretty actively engaged um jim belushi is active and has his own cannabis brand but also is a big supporter of last prisoner project more recently, um, Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's ice cream—he recently started his own cannabis brand—and ten percent of the profits of that organization go to Last Prisoner Project. So he is a, a big supporter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the, the original founders, Steve D'Angelo, who has been a cannabis advocate and an activist for decades and decades, are behind the organization. So it's a, it's a really wide range of people who are you know, really passionate about wanting to take the action, get, you know, use their voices to be able to highlight what yeah. these people are going through and hopefully, you know, utilize the the resources they have to to help them get out of prison and, and get back on their feet.
0: And I'm on your website uh, uh, just looking at some of these Melissa Etheridge, Be Real, uh, these are all some of the ambassadors, uh, names, yeah. Cal- Calvin Johnson, the former yeah, NFL. Have
1: Freddie, you know, we got, uh, Mar- Bill Maher, Bill Maher. Mar- yeah.
0: Yeah. Marshawn Lynch. I mean, these are some big names that are involved with you guys. Yeah, Master yeah, P I- master P, make them say, uh, there you go. Kind <laughs> of like that. And there's Tahira. There you are. Right, right below. Well, um,
1: yeah, you know, we're pretty much the same.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, listen, this is fascinating stuff. And uh, hopefully this is just the beginning of continued reform, continued changes in the justice system. You guys are doing a phenomenal job. Uh, where can people find you? We'll link your, your book in the show notes, Tahira, anywhere on social media uh, or online that you'd like people to go.
1: Yeah, you can find me um, on LinkedIn, uh, Tahira Ramatula, under and Instagram and Twitter. It's Tahira Rem, T-A-H-I-R-A-R-E-H-M. Um, And then the the book is through MIT Press.
0: Beautiful. Hey, Tahira, thank you so much. Really nice connecting with you.
1: You as well. Thank you for, for your time. I really appreciate it.